Good afternoon, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with you. This is Rabbi Dovi Ben-Shushan from Congregation. <clears throat> Magen Avraham, hoping to spend a few minutes together to try to be mitorer each other. A few hours before Shabbat Kodesh and a few hours before the great Yom Hadin. This past summer, Borei Olam had Rahmanut on me. He knew how much I wanted to go to Eretz Israel. And Baruch Hashem, Borei Olam opened a few days for me on the guest list of Eretz HaKodesh. And I was able to go literally just for a few days. And it was there that with my daughter, we went around to the Mekomot HaGdoshim to come and open our hearts to pray to Borei Olam to get Berachot from the Gidolei Israel. It was on one stop when we were up north making the rounds between Tveria, Reb Meir Balhanes, then going over to the Rambam, the wife of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Akiva, and then making our way up to Tzfat to spend, to spend a few minutes in the Mikveh of the Ari, and then down to the grave of the great Arizal and the Bal Chadodi, the Ramak, as well as making our way further down to Rabbi Yosef Cairo, Maran, Shulchan Aruch, Hanan has seven sons, and of course, Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. It was from there that we jumped back into the car, and it's amazing, that feeling, that rush, that you're running from one of the Mekomotak Doshim to the next, and each experience has something so special to it, this certain flavor of feeling and emotion, that each one of the tzaddikim and the tefilot that are said there, and how they reach back and touch you. It was from there that we started making our way out to Amuka, down to Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel. And I tell you the truth, Amuka and me has a long history. It's much longer than just from the days that we got married, like I know many go. There in Amuka, I'm standing there and I'm davening and a coach bus pulls up and I wasn't really paying attention because my heart was into the tefillot, and I was trying to maximize on the moment. And there I'm pouring my heart out through Yonatan ben Uziel, and suddenly I hear a very flamboyant language coming at me, maybe 60, 70 people coming off of coach buses. And I started to listen in a little closer. It wasn't English. It was clearly French. No, but this was the real French. This wasn't the Canadian French, and it wasn't the Belgian French. This was the Paris. This was the real, the real deal. And as I begin to listen to the dialect, and as they're talking to each other, and then their, their, their Hazan and their Rav make their way to the front, right up of the Kever, Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel, they begin to sing Salihot right there on the Makom HaKadosh. I couldn't believe it. That morning, Baruch Hashem, I got to say, but there was no feeling like saying it again with such a tzibur. And they were singing such beautiful Moroccan tunes that brings me back to my youth. This was a moment for me. This really caught me off guard. I, I didn't see this coming. Nor did I see what was about to come in conversation. Right when we finished the Silichot, 45 minutes later. I was standing on the side and just mesmerized 
by this great group of French Jews. And one of the Gabaim, he walks up to me and he begins to speak in French. And I, I told him, I'm sorry, in a broken Hebrew, a little bit of English. I told him I, uh, a little bit of French. I told him I, I don't speak the language. Oh, he says, really? In Hebrew, he asks me, so where are you from? I said, I'm from the United States. I'm actually from New York. He says, but you, um, you look, I said, yes, I come from the same tribe as you. Nonetheless, I'm here only for a visit. So he says to me, tell me, in a French Hebrew, tagidli, what is the situation in America today? How is the Jews in America doing? I said, Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, we're trying our best in building and growing shuls and kolelim and yeshivot and avodat Kodesh. Suddenly his face drops to the floor and with, a, with a deep sigh. He tells me that his family was from the first families that settled many generations ago in France. And it was there that they were the founders of much of the Jewish community in Paris, in Strasbourg, in different areas. And he says, but today, he says, today, France is no longer a place for a Jew. We can't walk out of our houses anymore without being petrified. We literally walk around with armed guards. Our children, they aren't safe. Our yeshivot, our schools, our batikneset. He says, do you see all these people here? And he showed me literally busloads of people. He says, you know why we're here? We're not here just to tour like everybody else, but we're here to buy. We're here to buy in. We're committed. We're on a tour, but our own congregation is picking up together with our Rabbanim, with our Hazanim as a whole kihila. And we're leaving France and we're coming to Eretz Israel together. And together we're going around and checking out different plots of land and places to build a French neighborhood. We really are so excited. And how close we are to France, we have absolutely no remorse. Our heart and our love is right here in Eretz Israel. I was very moved by his emotion and how he spoke with such heart. And he actually, <laughs> he got emotional a few times talking about Eretz Yisrael and how he finally, that they finally made it. And here's their opportunity to finally make it to Eretz HaKodesh, as he said, right before the coming of Mashiach. But then it hit me. He turns to me and he says, you know, in the beginning, we didn't really feel it. It was happening right in front of our noses. We... We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't see it. He says, at first, it was just a little bit of an incident here or an incident there. And slowly but surely, the anti-Semitism started to spread rapidly. He says, then after that, we started to find the appearance of armed guards by our shuls. And then after that, by our schools. And then as we began to travel, we saw that it wasn't just a, a Jewish problem, but it was a French problem. Every time we went over our tunnels, over our bridges, through our tunnels, suddenly everyone is stopped one by one. Suddenly France is glored and covered in checkpoints, similar to what many of us saw in Eretz Israel over the years. He says, that was just the beginning, and why we didn't catch it at that point, he says, I don't know. 
We were so connected to the land and to our businesses, to our homes, and of course to the roots of the land and the lineage of years that we spent on French soil. But he says suddenly it just took off so fast. The words of the great Baba Sali, Zechit Sadiq Lebracha, as he told us almost 30 years ago, right before the great Baba Sali passed away, he left a message for the Jews of France that they're going to be the ones right before Mashiach to be able to get out and they're all going to come to Eretz Israel. and we're watching this. We're watching it literally unfold right now in front of our eyes. But when he started to tell me those little caveat of those little details about how first it started with suddenly armed guards in the front of shuls and stopping cars by the bridges and the tunnels, I started to think to myself, hey, what's going to be in 5776? You know, tonight, the American people, all of us, are going to celebrate the night of 9-11. And as well, we listen to hear and continue to hear the news and how it's amazing. It's more like incredible that after listening to the speech of Bibi Netanyahu months ago and how it seemed that the United States was unified behind a cause where they would realize how dangerous it is to enter the deal they're about to enter. Suddenly, from then till now, a lot changed. And suddenly we're hearing a whole new call, Raj Gadol, coming about support for a deal that is going to be something scary. Klal Yisrael's thinking into this and watching on American soil. And then we hear about the Supreme Court rulings of recent, and we begin to scratch our heads too. And we start to think even deeper. This is the end of Shemitah. We're told about the year of Shemitah, and we're also told about the year that follows Shemitah. What's going to be in 5776? And then as we listen in shuls, and we hear people coming back from Eretz Yisrael, and how more and more people suddenly are starting to turn, oh yeah, they call it vacation, but they're looking for the opportunities to visit her more and more today than ever, as if we feel some sort of a force warming us up and telling us, come, take a look at Klal Yisrael in the Eretz HaGdosha. Take a look at the Yeshivot. Come to Bnei Brak. Come into the great Reb Chaim Shalita. Come into the Gedolim. Get Berachot. Feel charged. See what life was meant to be. Ah, if we could be Zochet Geula, what life really was supposed to be and what it could be. And we're wondering, what is this year going to be allowed? What is going to happen? What type of year we're coming to now? And we hear about these stories of people like you and I who go out to Eretz Yisrael and they come into the Gidolim and the great Reb Chaim Kanievsky Shalita Admea Vesrim turns to so many people and says, no, when are you coming? I want you to come to Eretz Yisrael. And I know many people out there heard. And I myself, the speaker, had this conversation with Reb Chaim a year ago as well. 
telling so many Rabbanim, come pick up your whole kehillah. Bring them to Eretz Yisrael. Reb Chaim told me, I want you to live right here next to me in Bnei Brak with the whole kehillah. And that should be interesting. <laughs> Nonetheless, but we hear this from the Gidolim, from the echoes of the news. And slowly but surely, we start going over our bridges and through our tunnels. And we start to think and say, hey, Yom Adin, here it is. The two days that is going to decide 57, 76. So what do we do now? Rabotai, if you think for one minute that I am here to start saying things of what yes and what al chas shalom no. Believe me, for the Gidolim we listen. Mipihen anu chaim. We live by their words. We drink from their words. But I do want to tell you that Kalali Israel, it doesn't really matter. Remember who we are. And remember what we have. And understand with this that no matter what is going to be coming this coming year, like the great Rib Shem Pinkis, Zechit Sadik Lebracha used to say, he says, you know what Rosh Hashanah is like? It's like trying to cross a highway at night with no lights. And all you hear is the zizik and the screeching and the sounds of cars flying by, but you can hardly see what's coming at you. How are you supposed to cross the street like that? So we turn to the Abish and we say, Bore Olam, please take my hand and cross me. Cross me over this unbelievable challenge of a year coming. Because only you know what's coming. Only you know. Only you can see. We have a tremendous koach. And that koach on these two days, Ve'ezat Hashem haba aleinu litova, Rosh Hashanah, 5776 on these two days. We have a koach that when activated, there is nothing in the world that can go up against it. Let me explain to you what I mean. The Alta Belzarebi, Zechet Sadik Lebracha, Rebbe Aaron Belza, he was known to be from the great Ba'alei Ruach HaKodesh. He was Mamish from the Gidole Hador of Europe, without a question. The great Rebbe Aaron Belza, he once was in treatment in Berlin. And after his treatments, the year was 1929, he was taken out, given a bill of health. And before he was to return home, he turned to his Gabbai, to his Hasidim, and he said, before we return, I want you to take me to a certain place, a place by the name of Bad Hamburg. It was a resort-like. And at first they thought maybe it was because the Rebbe wanted to relax. The Rebbe wanted to be Noah, to heal. I mean, there were extensive tests, and they put him through a lot. Maybe this was just a time for a little dasha, a little, a little vacation. But little did they realize that when they got to this place, Bad Hamburg, the Rebbe asked to stay in a specific apartment, in a specific building, right across the street from a very fancy resort hotel. Matter of fact, this hotel was known in Germany as the upper-class Highline Hotel, where most of the German diplomats 
would spend their vacations. And the Rebbe actually turned to the Gabbai and said, Oh, what a shame. I wish that the windows of the apartment facing out to the hotel would have been bigger windows. What? The Shamosh turns back to the Rebbe. <laughs> bigger windows? For what? A better view? And then the Rebbe made nothing of it. Now, clearly, when they started seeing the Rebbe's routine, they saw that this was not for vacational purposes, just the opposite. For the next six weeks, Rabotai, listen to this, for six weeks, Rebbe Aaron Belza, Zechet Sadik Lebracha, day after day, he was betanit, he was fasting, he was crying over Tehillim, he was soaking the pages, he was davening, but Azaz, such a davening. And as he was davening, he continuously looked out the window and he looked across. And it was as if he was trying to, it's as if he was trying to target something. Rabaran Belza, Yom Valayla, day and night. The learning, the davening intensified. The ta'aniyot intensified. And then finally, after six weeks, uh, the Rebbe was falling apart. He turns to the Shamosh. And he tells to his Gabai, he says, Ah, I, he says, I stopped him. Abba, I can't stop him all the way. And it's with those words that the Rebbe, together with his Hasidim, picked up from Bond Hamburg and they made their way back to the Rebbe's home. Now, this was a story that was totally... <laughs> totally cryptic it was it was it was beyond anyone's understanding and no one really got an answer out of Rabarn and no one really understood what was going on until years later years later when they were able to track back through all different types of war records they actually found that in those six week time were the first meetings of the national socialist party in germany later on to be known as the infamous Nazis. And who was in that hotel right across from the apartment of Rabbi Aaron Belzer? None other than Yemach Shemo, Hitler himself. And for weeks, Rabbi Aaron Belzer was davening and crying. For weeks, Rabbi Aaron was betanit. Ay, 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 the koach hatefilavet sadiq. And truth, truth be told, in 1929, when the Nazi party first made their first attempt at power and government, for the first somewhat, some five to six years, they failed. Matter of fact, they failed terribly at first. Matter of fact, they were even a German joke of a political party at first. Ah, that was the Rebbe. That was the Kayachat Tefillah. Ah, the Rebbe knew exactly the power of Tefillah. And he believed in those tefillot. He knew that those tefillot could literally save a Klal Yisrael. It could stop a Holocaust. It could stop Chasrish Shalom, the Gzerot and Shamayim that were destined to come out of this horrific party and this infamous individual. And what the Rebbe wouldn't do six weeks, Yom Valayla, the Koach HaTefillah, fighting a war right across the street from the hotel as they stood 
making all their final solutions and cheshbonot behind closed doors in hotel rooms. They didn't know that Rabaran was across the street shooting torpedoes of tefillot at them, blowing them down, almost even stopping them, putting them out of commission for some few years till finally he said, I stopped them. I slowed them down. But to stop him completely, I couldn't. That's up to Klal Yisrael. Klal Yisrael has to do tshuva to break the final gezerah. And we come back to this realization every single year on Rosh Hashanah. What's coming this year? Who's coming at us this year? Who's across the street in that hotel plotting against Klal Yisrael today? Who knows? Who knows? But it really doesn't matter. Because taking the lesson of the great Rebaran Belzer, we got to grab the incredible koah and the weapons that Borei Olam gave us. We got to grab the koah hatefilav Klal Yisrael. Because it's only Hakol Kol Yaakov that could stop and shut down the Yadayim Esav. That's it. En lanu alni mish'an. En lanu ami l'smoch. El avinu shabashamayim. We need this koach ha-tefillah on this Yom Hadin to cry out and say, Borei Olam, please, we're crying out and davening to you. Send us the Yeshuot this year. Bimivatel go kol gzerot kashot v'raot. Give Klal Yisrael a Geulah and Yeshua. Allow us to be able to finally make it to the Eretz HaKodesh. Allow us this year to be able to bring the Korbanot in the Bet HaMikdash. Abba, we miss you. Abba, Abba, we want to come home to you. That Koach when we ignite it on the greatest of days, when Borei Olam is so close, on Rosh Hashanah, he comes down and he visits us and listens. That Koach is something that nothing could stand in front of. And I want to tell you how far this goes. You see, because you might already know the Gemara of Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rebbe. Harei Rabbeinu HaKadosh. Rebbe was lying on his deathbed and he told, his he told his Talmidim that were around him something incredible. Rebbe told them that if I do end up passing away, I don't want you to tell the people yet. I want you to wait. Don't tell them right away when I pass away. And they looked at Rebbe and they said, Rabbeinu, Hare, we have to bury you. We have to make a levaya. How, how are we supposed to keep such a secret? The Gadol Hador, Rabbeinu HaKadosh passes away and we shouldn't say anything. Rebbe says, yes, I insist. You wait. And sure enough, shortly after that, Gimara tells us that Rebbe passed away. They asked Rebbe, they said, but Rebbe, why? Why do you want us to wait? Why the people? Do you know what Rebbe answered? He says, because if the people think that I'm still alive, they'll continue to pray for me. And those tefillot, might bring me back to life. Those tefillot, they have the koach 
שנמצאת במחיה המתים. We don't have a clue what the כוח of תפילה and the hand of a Jew is all about. We see from this מעשה of רבינו הקדוש that nothing could stand in front of the כוח התפילה. Not even something that seemed so final, not even death. And if that's the case, Rabotai, maybe I should just share with you for a moment on those tefillot on Rosh Hashanah, the tefillot that literally get Klal Yisrael, the Yeshuot, and the Hatzlacha, and the Beracha, and the Chaim for a new year. And there's so many beautiful sigulot. How our great Rabbanim Kubalim tell us that those who read the Tehillim on both days of Rosh Hashanah consecutively twice where they read day one Tehillim twice and then they ask for their bakashot for the year and they read again on day two the Tehillim twice and ask for their bakashot for the year the wording of Chazal it's misugal lekol ha-yishuot ulekol ha-berachot kulan that was a quote could you imagine walking into a year like that But how is that? I'm so worried about the scale. I'm so worried about the courthouse. I'm worried about the great Yom Hadin Hagadol Vahanorah. So Rabbi, what are you telling me? Sit down with a book of Tehillin and all of a sudden everything. No. You don't understand the power of the Tefillot. The power of the Tehillin. You're holding a nuclear force in your hands. And when you pour your heart out on a Tehillim and you read the entire book of Tehillim once and twice, Odapam, Mamash, you have no clue the grenades that you're sending in Shamaim. That is something that's misugal to set up for us. Ashana tovam borechet. Shinizke kulano. But it comes down to us. Do we believe in it? You see, because if you don't believe in that koach ha-tefillah, if you don't believe in the koach of the Tehillim, if you don't believe that a Jew can walk in on the night of Rosh Hashanah, and yes, there's a whole court case stacked against some people. But that koach ha-tefillah, it could work wonders if you believe in it. But if you don't believe in the koach ha-tefillah, could something help you? If you yourself don't believe it, let me tell you something incredible. They say over that there was a guy who was brought into the uh, higher courts here in the United States of capital punishment. Allegedly, they claimed he killed a murderer. He killed a young lady. Now, this guy knew that he was going to be put on trial, and he knew good and well. What the outcome of that trial may be if they find him guilty, so he, he wasn't wasting any resources or any time. He went out and he hired the best lawyer that money can buy. That lawyer, ladies and gentlemen, when I tell you the best lawyer that money can buy, I'm not talking about a 5,000 retainer either. Let's add a few zeros. And that's just to Shalom Aleichem. And then to bring him down to court and to literally give his time for this individual, the defendant, to take him out on death row, 
and to be able to actually find him not guilty in front of a jury, this was a big task. Apparently, the prosecution had a great case against him. But nonetheless, this lawyer claimed there was no case that was too big for him. Well, the defendant was convinced he has the right man. He put down an enormous amount of money of a retainer. And with that, his first day of court came, and he came into court with his high-line lawyer. His lawyer walks in with an Armani suit and a red tie, manicured nails, looking around the room with a smile as if he had this little vibe around him that says, don't worry, I got this. He sits down on the bench, and there the defense resides. The judge comes in, and this court case begins, and the prosecution stands up and says, Your Honor, uh, the prosecution believes that Mr. So-and-so, the defendant, allegedly murdered the young lady, and we have wiretaps, and we have video surveillances, and we have witnesses. We have a very strong case, and we're going to present it, Your Honor, in front of you and this jury, and we're certain that at the end, without a shadow of a doubt, you'll be able to find him guilty. The defending lawyer stands up and says, Your Honor, my client and I, we're not worried. We know he's innocent. And with those words, the defending lawyer sits down. Simply put, well, the course case begins and the prosecution begins to call witnesses. One witness after the next and after the next. And each time, the judge would turn to the defending lawyer and say, would you like to cross-examine the witness? Would you like to ask any questions? The defense would always say, no, Your Honor, that's okay. And meanwhile, the defendant is looking at his lawyer like, hey, uh, I know you're a big lawyer and I know from my retainer how much I paid you, but you're not doing anything. You're not objecting. You're not saying a word. It seems like that this is a one-sided case. It looks like the prosecution is the only one working for his dollar here. I hired you. How come you're not doing anything for me? And the defense lawyer looks at his client with a smile and a smirk, looks back at his manicured nails, and he says, Hey, I told you. I got this. Relax. Okay. All right. At the end of the day, I don't care how you do it. You just got to get me off the hook. He says, Don't worry. I got it. This goes on for another two weeks till finally that great day, the closing comments. The prosecution stands up and says, Your Honor, the prosecution, without a shadow of a doubt, has proved beyond a shadow of a doubt the guilt that this man has. He is guilty. He has murdered this young lady. Without a question. Your Honor, the prosecution rests. At that moment, the defense lawyer stands up. He walks up to the jury and smiles, and he looks at each person in the eye, and then looks back at the judge. And he says, Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I think I have to explain my behavior over the last two weeks. I know that you and even my client is trying to figure, what am I up to? I haven't said one word in the last two weeks of this courthouse. Do you think I'm giving this case away? Your Honor, absolutely not. There's a good reason why I sat quiet. Your Honor, a week ago, I got a call 
from the young lady that they claim my client murdered. That's right. She's not dead. She's alive. And a matter of fact, she's going to be walking into this courtroom in another 12 minutes. She's arriving at 1.30, and those doors there in the back of this courtroom, those great big oak doors, they're going to open up, and the victim, the victim, the prosecution claims without a shadow of a doubt was murdered by my client. Well, guess what? She's going to be walking into this courtroom in another 12 minutes. So there's your guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt case. That's why I had no reason to sweat it. I had no reason to worry. I was just waiting for everybody to finish playing with their toys so that I can bring out the truth on the final closing comments. And here it is. Your Honor, in 12 minutes, the truth will be told. And this young girl will walk through those doors at 1.30. At that moment, everyone in the courtroom was gasping for air. You had to see the look on the face of the prosecution. His jaw was on the floor. And the client, the defendant, with smiles from ear to ear. His defense attorney comes and sits back down. And now the client turns to his attorney and he says, Wow, you really are good. He says, Hey, I told you. I got this. Well, the judge, ordering the court, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in light of the new information that was presented to the court, that this young lady, the victim, or alleged victim, really is alive, was never murdered, and is going to walk through those doors in another few minutes, I think we owe it to justice and truth. The court is adjourned for another 12 minutes, and let's see, let's see her work in. And for the next 12 minutes, everyone in the courtroom stayed silent. And ladies and gentlemen, you can imagine if you were sitting in that courtroom like everybody else, and especially the jury. The jury who was so convinced that they heard a convincing case that they were about to move to a guilty decision. And here they are with their eyes fixed on the two back oak wood doors of the courthouse. And they waited five minutes and then 10 minutes and then 15 minutes and nobody showed. The justice, ladies and gentlemen, don't, don't, don't be impatient. Maybe she got stuck in traffic. Let's just give her a little bit more time. We'll just give her another 10 minutes and that's it. Another five and then another 10 minutes passed while everyone was just fixed their eyes on that door. But no one walked in. Till finally the judge turns around to the defense and says, are you sure she's walking in? The defense attorney stands up with a big smile. He walks in front of the judge and then again in front of the jury. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, now I'm going to tell you the truth. This young lady, she never called me a week ago, nor shall she walk through those doors of the courtroom. But I did want to demonstrate to you something. You felt that you're going to move to a guilty decision and a guilty plea because you found my client guilty without a shadow of a doubt. If you really believe that, how could you be looking at that door 
actually waiting for her to walk through the last half hour. Your very actions proved that you're not 100% convinced. But you did have somewhat of a doubt. So you waited to see if she might walk in or she might not. I have now proven to you without a shadow of a doubt that your decision is incomplete. Excuse my client on grounds of an inconclusive guilty decision. Suddenly a big cheer started to break out in the courtroom and everyone started clapping and cheering and wow, what a, what a genius. This defense attorney, brilliant, reverse psychology. The judge, his mouth was hanging open and the people in the jury, they were just shaking their heads like shrugging their shoulders. You know, the guy has a point. If we really believe that 100% he killed her, how could we have been looking at that door expecting that she's going to walk in? It was at that moment that the judge turns to the jury and the judge says, well, ladies and gentlemen, we still have a duty to perform. So please go back into the room and after your deliberations come out and tell us your final decision. The jury goes into their rooms and a few minutes later they come back. They walk into the courtroom and a young lady, the head of the jury, she stands up and she says, Your Honor, the jury has found a unanimous decision we found the defendant guilty of murder. Suddenly the whole courtroom, what? The defense attorney, what? How could that be? Yes, guilty. The judge turns to the, to the juror and says, on what grounds? And she says, your honor, please let me explain. The defense attorney is clearly brilliant. And yes, there's no question that when he told us his story about the young lady calling him and her walking through the doors of the court, he really had us going. There's no question. And we started to doubt our decision if this defense, if the defendant really murdered or not. But your honor, I want to tell you something. While all my colleagues in the jury were had their eyes peeled and facing focused on that door, watching to see if she was going to walk in. I had my eyes on the defendant and for the entire half hour wait, he never turned around once to look at the door. Your honor, you know why he didn't turn around to look at the door once? Because he was the only one in this room to know that there's no way that that girl could walk through those doors because he killed her. He's guilty. The courtroom jumped out. Everyone was yelling and cheering. Justice was served. You see, because you can have the greatest defense attorneys, but if you don't believe in your own defense, you could never get anywhere. Boreolam, we have such unbelievable defense attorneys on these great days of Oshana. We have the shofar, we have the tefillot, we have the yud gimel midot, Hashem Hashem, kel rahum hanun. But if we're like that guy that doesn't believe in the defenses that we ourselves are presenting in our courtroom,
if we're not turning around and literally looking in the direction of hope and the defense of a Rahmanut from Shamaim, if we're not working with our hearts and praying our hearts out on this Yom Shana, all the defenses in the world, what can it do for someone who doesn't believe in it? Comes Rosh Hashanah. A person has to stop for a moment and remember, this is my moment of closeness, Bore Olam. Hashem, you're coming to see me. Ani vidodili. It's amazing how the Khatam Sofer writes, Ani vidodili Elul. Do you know that that word Elul is made up of the Kree and the Ktiv? Of the capital Kaf in Tehillim, the hundredth capital in Tehillim. Over there in the hundredth capital, we say, Mizmor litoda, hariu l'ashem kol ha'aretz, ivdu et ha'ashem b'simcha, bo'il fana benana, de'u ki ha'ashem, hu elokim, hu asanu velo anachno. Velo anachno is spelled with an aleph. That's the ketiv, the way it's written. But it's not read. It's read velo as if it was written with a vav. Velo anachno. And both, in both ways, there's a magnificent meaning. Hu Elohim, Hu Asanu, He is Hashem. He made us. Velo Anachnu. The way it's written with an Aleph, Velo, not us. He made us. But it also is Velo Anachnu, that we are to Him. Regardless if you read it Lamid Aleph or Lamid Vav, both cry out. That we're his. Take a look at that creative. Lamid Aleph, Lamid Vav. You know what those two spell? Elul. They're crying out. Velo Anachno. It's not in our hands. It's not our koah. It's not our abilities. But rather, Velo with a Vav Anachno. We're, we're his. And we're waiting to see him. And now on this day of Rosh Hashanah, we're waiting with bated breath to see the Melech and to pour our hearts out with tefillah and to ask Bore Olam that this year, Klal Yisrael can see the Yeshuot that we need so desperately. I'd like to end off with something of a magnificent story. I have a little bit of a hard time saying over this story with out getting emotional, so I, I guess I'm asking in advance for a certain uh, pardon on this. But Be'ezat Hashem, Borei Olam should give the koach. You know, in the Tivot Shalom, he says an incredible yisod on how a Jew is to come into Rosh Hashanah. He says, Hashem is not looking for you to be perfect. Hashem is not looking for perfection. Hashem is looking for unconditional commitment are you in do you believe in the Yom Hadin do you believe that these days are going to be Kovea the entire coming year do you believe in the Tefilot that you're sending up to Bore Olam that's going up to fight for us in Shamaim for Shana Tovam Borechet do you believe in everything that Rosh Shana and its aura stands for the uniting of Klal Yisrael with Bore Olam Abba we missed you all year. 
says Nitivot Shalom, unbelievable. He says, the Sefer Ahaim and Chasvish and the other Sefer is opened. The Sefer Tzadikim and the Sefer Shaim is opened. And he writes that Bore Olam hands us the pen. And he tells us, you choose. Which sefer do you want to be in this year? Are you ready to commit yourself to live for Bore Olam? Are you ready to go back to what you know you need to be? Know what you need to do? Then if that's the case, you're living for me. That's Chaim. You can write yourself in that sefer. But the other sefer is talking for those that no longer have a purpose for Bore Olam. Chas v'shalom. They lost their way. They lost their mission. It's us that write it. It's us that decide. What amazing Yisod. Let me end off with just this story. There was a guy that left New York City, a Jewish businessman, and he got onto an Amtrak train and he was traveling out to Washington. The ride from the city to Washington was about almost four hours. So he had a long ride. And it was really packed. So he was really unhappy where there were no seats. And this is a four-hour trek. After a few minutes and a few stops, little by little, a few seats start opening. And he sees in the corner of his eye one seat in the back of the train that suddenly opens. He runs up to the seat. He's about to sit down. And then he sees why no one else is sitting down there. The seat was right across. It looked like a young teenager with a black hood hanging over his head. His hands were in his sleeves. His head was hunched over. Hardly to see his face. He looked like a thug. Nobody wanted to mess with this kid, so no one wanted to sit in front of him. You know how the trains are where when you sit down, you're literally facing the other person's face, face to face. The last person he wanted to sit face to face to was with this teenager. He didn't look like, he looked like trouble. But nonetheless, we're talking about a, a ride out to Washington on an Amtrak train. He's not standing for three hours. So he said to himself, you know, I'll sit here for a moment. He sits down. As he's sitting across from this kid, the kid looks up and looks him right in the eye. So he puts his paper down for a moment and something caught him. And he says to the kid, hey, can I help you? The kid says, no, no, just leave me. Okay, a few minutes later, again, their eyes meet. Hey, kid, listen, I'm sitting here anyways. Can I help you? Maybe I can help you out. You need some money? You need a lunch? Kid says, no. Thank you. It's all right. Finally, the guy says, listen, I'm here anyways for three hours. Come on. I'm going to be facing you the whole ride. Let me help you. So the kid pulls back his hood. And he sees under the hood, there's a little yarmulke. <sighs> he didn't see that coming. He says, now I'm going to help you. What's going on? Tell me your story. The kid says, I'm going to tell you. He says, when I was young, I grew up right outside of Baltimore. And, uh, you know, a good few years ago when I was young, I didn't have any friends. And in school, in yeshiva, I really didn't do well. I had two passions. My life evolved around two things. The Baltimore Orioles and a computer that my parents bought me. I was a whiz in computers. And matter of fact, you know, I love baseball so much that what I would spend my time day and night doing is just entering into my computer all the stats of all the baseball players. 
I knew him by heart. I knew him backwards and forwards. In the middle of the night, you can wake me up. I would tell you the whole lineup of the Baltimore Orioles and exactly what they're batting and what their averages are. I would figure out their averages before the TV would. And I would enter it into my computer. And this went on. This went on for about two years. I had no friends. I just came home, went upstairs, computer, day in, day out. I lived for this. One day, my cousin from New York comes up to Baltimore. And he says to me, hey, how you doing? Now, my cousin's a real sharp guy. He's the opposite of me. He has everybody's friends. He knows how to talk. He dresses sharp. And he says to me, what do you do all day? And then suddenly I showed him. I showed him this brilliant program that I built around Major League Baseball and how I put in the stats of each player. He says, wow, you know, that's genius. Well, I'll tell you the truth. He told me that whenever I'm in New York, I should come visit him. I don't know what happened after that. But as I started to get a little bit older, yeshiva just didn't work out for me, so I left. And after I left yeshiva, it was totally downhill. Every night, my parents and I, we'd get into these terrible fights. What are you doing with your life? Where are you going with life? You're sitting home day in, day out in a room with a computer. What's going on with you? You have no direction. And the fights would get worse and worse. Till finally one day, my parents decided that I'm not a good inspiration for my younger, younger kids, brothers and sisters. I saw the look on their faces. They didn't have to say it. I said, you know what? I'll do it. I picked myself up, grabbed the duffel bag, and I said, I'm out. And I'm never coming back. And you know what I did? I got on a train. And I went out to New York City. And I met up with my, my cousin. And he said to me, hey, you know what? Ever since I saw that great program that you did with the Major League Baseball, I always kept it in the back of my mind. I'd like to try something with you. You know, right now we're in this crazy dot-com boom. Let's open a dot-com for Major League Baseball. And we'll put your computer program on it with all the stats of the Major League players. Because there's a lot of fans out there just like you. I bet they would pay just to keep current with the stats of their favorite players. And sure enough, that's what we did. And little by little... Money started to flow in, and then investors started calling us. Funders came down with meetings, and suddenly I started to make more money than my parents ever saw. I got myself a loft in Upper Manhattan, and this went on for another year and a half, till one day my cousin came and told me, hey, I got bad news. Somebody out there went and built a program just like yours, and it also keeps all the stats of major league players but it's now online for free. We're done. I said, what? And sure enough, I looked it up and he was right. The money stopped. And that was it. At that point, I had nothing. I had to sell everything just to survive. And that was short-lived. I found myself on the streets. I had nothing left. It came to the point where literally I was knocking on people's doors, sitting like some of the bums in the streets. Till one day I said, you know what? I got to try this. I wrote a letter to my parents. Mom and dad, I was so wrong. I just was so blind. Please let me come home to you. Listen, I'm going to get on a train. And I'm going to get a ticket to Washington. And Washington stops through Baltimore. I'm going to be on this and this train. It's going to come through Baltimore at this and this time. 
You know there's that big oak tree on the outside that you can see from the train platform? If you put a white flake on that tree, I'll know that that's the sign that you're ready to take me home. We'll do this painlessly. But if there's no white flag, that means you're not interested, and I'll continue on the train to Washington, and I'll find a life there. I always liked Washington. So the guy looks, and he says, wow, I totally didn't see this story coming. So tell me, kid, what happened when you got on the train, you went out to Washington? Was your parents there? Did they put the white flag out on the tree? And he looks the Jewish businessman in the eye, and he says, I don't know. I'm on the train right now. He says, you mean right now? You mean in another few stops when we come up to Baltimore? You're going to look to see if that white flag is there? He said, he said, yeah. And I says, I, I can't, I can't look. I'm, I'm. I'm falling apart. I don't know if they're going to take me back or not. I, I've been losing sleep on this for the longest time. I, I, what will I do if they don't take me back? I'm, I'm, I'm a goner. This Jewish businessman tried to be a little word of Hezuki. He says, don't worry. Parents are parents. And they'll always be parents. And you kids got to learn that. You'll see. You'll see. That flag will be out there. He says, but listen to me. Help me. I can't look. Could you look for me now that you know my story? He says, yeah. A few stops later, they finally come up to the train station in Baltimore. The kid has his hood over his eyes. And the businessman is looking and looking. He says, oh, I see the tree. He says, tell me, is there a flag on it? He looks and he says, no, there's no white flag. He says, oh. He says, a matter of fact, the entire tree is covered with white flags. And there's two people standing under the tree. Looks like a mom and a dad, a little older, with their arms out crying. Go out there to your parents. The kid jumps up and he ran out to the arms of his parents. So when you walk into shul on Rosh Hashanah night and you see the hechal is all white, that's the white flag. Abba's waiting all year. We should come into his arms. Say, Abba, I, I missed you. Please, give me a Shana Tovam Borechet. This year I'm going to be the real deal. This year I have direction. This year I believe in it. This year I'm buying into you. This year I'm ready to live, not for me, but for you. Abba, 5776 for Klal Israel. We need a Shana Tovam Borechet. Maybe this year we can make it with the Geulah Krova to Eretz Yisrael. This is Rabbi Duvi Ben Shushan wishing everyone out there Shana Tovam Borechet. Shenistke Bezat Hashem Li Geulah Krova. Ktiva Bahatima Tova.